Today, my guest is Professor Saul Estrin. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Saul as a person, Professor Estrin as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Estrin is an AIB fellow and an associate fellow of the Center for Economic Performance at London School of Economics. He was the founding head of the new Department of Management at LSE and formerly served as associate dean and acting dean at LBS. Saul has published around 150 books and scholarly papers on a wide range of subjects in IB and entrepreneurship, with particular reference to emerging and transition economies. In addition to his scholarly work, he was a non-executive board member of Bearing Asset Management, Emerging Markets Trust, and a member of the academic panel of the UK Postal Regulator Postcom. He has consulted to the World Bank, European Union, and OECD, as well as several major global companies. Thank you all for joining us. Hi. Uh, first question, um, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, it's interesting you asked that. I thought about this question a little bit. Uh, I, I'm a child of the 1960s, um, which I'm sure you and none of your listeners uh, uh, can think back to. No one wanted to become things in, in that era. This idea, <laughs> the, the concept that you at a young age would have a purpose uh, was completely um, uh, unknown. Uh, I didn't want to become anything. I wanted to be happy. I wanted love. Uh, I wanted peace. I wanted a better world. Uh, that's it. Where did you grow up? What? Where did I you never. Grow who up? said I grew up? <laughs> okay. Uh, so. <laughs> okay. Um, the moment of distinct awareness between domestic versus foreign. When did you realize? I don't really know. Um, I, I, I grew up um, in England. Um, and I mean, this is sort of not politically uh, super correct, but it's worth saying. Uh, England at the time when I grew up was still the center of quite a large um, empire. Uh, my father, uh, um, my father was um, in India and in Burma from in, throughout the, the war and well beyond, um, and and remained in very close contact with India uh, uh, because he was uh, involved with. Um, uh, he was essentially part of the British Army that was looking after Gandhi and managing the transfer of power. And so he remained in quite close touch with the, um, the, the leadership of um, uh, India after independence in 1948. And, um, you know, during my youth um, in our schools, in our um, um, uh, politics, um, if you were in the UK, uh, the head of state of, the, of, of Britain was the head of state of Nigeria, was the head of state uh, of Jamaica, was the head of state of Canada, was the head of state of Australia. And so the distinction between national and international was perhaps a little bit looser, oddly enough. I mean, this notion of domestic versus international uh, is a 
for the Britain, a post-1950s thing, uh, or 1960s thing, not a pre-1960s thing. Um, and I, I think I was always fairly aware of international. That being uh, said, because it's a very odd thing, Britain at that time was also very insular, and still is, of course, very insular. And so I distinctly remember exotic things coming into the country for the first time, like bananas and pineapples. And then the biggest excitement of all uh, uh, was the arrival of avocados. I was well into a teenager by the time <laughs> avocados came here. And so, um, um, uh, uh, what I'm trying to say is, it's a complicated notion, this idea of domestic versus international. It's quite oh. a complicated notion. How did you choose academia? Well, I'm afraid this is the same answer as your first question. I didn't choose anything. I sort of went to university uh, uh, without any particular plan in life, and I never left. Uh, so I'm still there. And sometime I expect someone will offer me a good job and I'll leave or I'll work out <laughs> what I want to do. But at the moment, it seems a very comfortable resting place. I enjoyed it. It was nice. Um, but I think the idea that I made a choice is a little, really isn't how it worked. And I don't think I'm unusual of my generation. I think if you were to speak to many people of okay. my generation, they would say the same. I'm afraid to ask have you chose IB or um, entrepreneur. How do you choose the field, the, the, the areas that you write these papers in? Now that is a, a more complicated story. Um, I'm very... <laughs> The fields in which I am interested in, I'm an economist um, by training. Uh, my degree was in economics. My higher degrees were in economics. Um, but my interests have always sprawled on the one hand from uh, mathematical modeling and statistics, and on the other hand, history. The, so essentially, uh, you know, that's the range of my interests. And my very great interest in history has always led, led me to be extremely interested in uh, uh, political and economic systems. Um, what we would now call, uh, uh, what used to be called comparative economic systems, but is now called uh, institutional uh, uh, analysis. Um, and although I'm more interested in, in institutions as a system, than, I, than I'm interested in individual institutions. Now, from a very early date, therefore, I was extremely interested. I'm not a macro person, I'm a micro person. I'm not interested in whether, oh, I don't know, America performs better than China or Russia. I'm that, I mean, it's not that it's an uninteresting question, I'm just not personally interested in it. But I am interested in how organizations perform in different uh, types of system. And the first two systems I looked at in organizations were the Soviet type system and the British type or the US, the Anglo-Saxon type system. And that was my comparison. I was involved in that. I was interested in that really as a, a school child. Um, and, and I worked on uh, the Soviet. I looked very closely. I was traveling around Europe uh, I, I uh, this is rather embarrassing, really, but in the 1970s, I, um, I uh, 
had a yellow Volkswagen microbus, and I and a group of friends drove around Western and Eastern Europe and drove through the streets of places like Prague and Warsaw uh, um, and so forth in a day when it was extreme with, you know, with waist length hair and uh, 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 um, uh, uh, and Afghan coats and, and tie dye uh, T-shirts and things at a time when, although this was very good in for, for uh, the UK, it really wasn't terribly fashionable, should we say, in the Soviet bloc. Uh, and we had some very nasty brushes, actually, with the um, authorities during those travels. But I was very interested in those systems. And that is really, that has been the focus of my interest ever since. Uh, it's changed form because the world's changed in 40 years. But it, it hasn't, the interest remains the same. I'm interested in why. <laughs> I'm interested in why some organizations work well in some contexts uh, where, uh, where a context is a system, is a, a, a constellation of institutional arrangements, why the same organization might work terrifically well in one place and rather badly in another. Why would an American or British type PLC really operate terribly well if you're thinking of uh, Apple or Elon Musk, but when you plonk it in what is now Putin's Russia, or indeed to some extent in, in, in President uh, Xi's China, the same organization doesn't work nearly as well, but a different organization works much better. Now, what is behind that? That's essentially, that was a rather long answer to your question. I'm sorry, I rambled on. You'll have to stop me, you know. No, this was fine, this was fine. Um... Uh, I'll come back to a couple of the personal questions in a, in, in a bit, but I want to follow up on this one. In your opinion, what are some of the things that are understudied in IB? Uh, some of the contexts or variables that we have underutilized so far? Um, I, I have to say, I... I, I, I on this sort of question, I, I would say that I don't really, um, I don't hold a brief. I don't regard myself as holding a brief for the field. I hold a brief for my own interests. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so um, what I feel is, what do I feel is understudied? I think uh, <laughs> if I were running journals, which I don't, I think I would be quite interested in extending the analysis much more into the field of history and into the field of political economy. And I would be very interested in extending thinking about institutions, which are much thinking about institutions is quite formal, but much of what's important about institutions is on the one hand, the informal, well, I think the literature sort of knows that, but doesn't quite know what to do with it. And the second is the way institutions combine into systems, as I've already mentioned to you. So I think I'm not really gonna talk about other people's research agendas. I don't have enough depth of knowledge, but within my own research agenda, I would say, the, let me come back to the political economy side, because, I mean, one of the good things about my career is I have hung around some quite interesting people. So uh, uh, my career is quite a simple career. I started, uh, uh, I was at Cambridge for a long time, England, and then I went to LSE 
and then I went to London Business School and then I came back to LSE again. So I, <laughs> I'm what you might call well-traveled in a range of about 60 miles. <laughs> um, and there've been a lot of interesting people at LSE in when my first phase at LSE, um, the person in charge of economic institutions, not much known now, it was a guy called Peter Wiles, who was really pivotal in developing the idea. His core textbook was called Economic Institutions Compared. Uh, and it's a very, it captures very much my way of thinking. And then the other person who was very good, who ran with me and Wiles, the LSE seminar on uh, economic systems was Susan Strange. Um, and Susan Strange, of course, worked very closely with John Stockford and produced a pivotal book, uh, which led to a lot of work later on by Lorraine Eden uh, on uh, essentially on political economy and the um, uh, on political economy in the um, uh, uh, IB area. Um, and essentially that strain of knowledge is largely lost, putting it terribly bluntly. Um, the Stockford Strange book, uh, when I moved to LBS, I co-taught a course with Stockford on, uh, uh, on, their, uh, um, uh, on that work. It's just not there really in the literature anymore. Um, Why is that? I mean, uh, you're touching on a couple of things that touch on a couple of questions. So you're talking about the evolution of the fields and you're explaining how the field evolved uh, to a different area. Why did it happen that way? Well, obviously, I've got a very particular view of how the field developed, which is partial because I, I wasn't in the IB field at that time, really. I was more hanging around on the economics outskirts of it. Mm -hmm. You've got to remember that in my era, in the, you know, in, as a graduate student, uh, the two big guns, really, or two or three big guns in IB were economists. Uh, uh, there was Charlie Kindleberger, um, um, uh, and there was Heimer and, and there was Dick Caves. Um, and their studies were the pivotals in the, this is in the era, right? I mean, uh, Vernon was very important and Heimer were very important, but they were more pure political economy people. Um, they were economists also. This is in the pre-Rugman um, uh, slash Dunning era. Uh, and Rugman and Dunning, in my view, really created the field. I mean, if you were to look at the Charlie Charles Kindleberger book, um, which sort of tried to define FDI, the uh, uh, definitive book, um, I think it's an MIT press book. It's got all the key uh, people um, and it's very political economy and it's very uh, quantitative and economicsy. Um, but it doesn't really have that framework that in their different ways Dunning and Rugman put in, which is the framework that still powers the field to this day. But it's much harder to get a political, political economy questions uh, from that sort of view, which relates to internalization. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's just harder. So, I mean, it's not true because there's the Ramamurti two-tier bargaining model. It pops up now and again. But in general, it's just a framework where the field has gone uh, into IB, which is, where it's just lost 
certain things. But of course, that's a real problem because um, the political fact, I mean, at the moment, as you know, uh, uh, internationalization and FDI is declining sharply. And if you ask yourself why, you can't really explain that using frameworks like internalization or ownership advantages, none of which are changing. What's changing is, is the context and the political economy. And so, it is quite a lacuna in the field, I think. The, it, uh, I'm not the only person to be saying this, I'm just, you know, you asked me what I thought was a big gap, and I think that's a big gap. No, no, you're right. I mean, I asked this question to a couple of people. I asked the question to a couple of people. I said, you know, everyone thinks globalization is going to do a, going to do a comeback, but uh, my hunch is that nationalism, populism is going to be uh, increasing for a while before we see the pendulum swings the other way. I don't uh, think the pendulum will swing the other way. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, 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 well, it depends on, I mean, who knows, I'm not talking about a thousand years hence, but in the next few years, I think the pendulum that's started to swing like this will continue to swing like that. I mean, I, I, this is perhaps a different and deeper topic, and this is political, and it's, you know, I have no better view of this. I have no... I have no crystal ball sitting in this room, right? So I don't really know. But my feeling is um, that the politics of winners and losers, whereby the losers feel the losses much more intensely than the winners feel the gains, mean that um, um, means that it's a fundamental political economy sort of point. Mean that. Um, politics will be unlike democratic politics will be unlikely to revert to the same level of free movement of labor, free movement of capital, free movement of goods that we saw previously. And that's before the whole pandemic and global warming sustainability issue comes to play, which I think also uh, transform things because the, the pollution coming from transport and from these big boats and all the rest are also very, very serious. So, I mean, um, it's obviously much more complicated than that because um, digitalization reduces transactions, costs of flows of knowledge and information. So certain sectors will continue, so to speak, to globally integrate, but other sectors, it seems to me, uh, will not. And I think uh, I mentioned this in a paper, a short paper I recently wrote. I think the free mobility of labor is going to be a very interesting issue. The idea that people will freely go from place to place, upon which an awful lot of um, globalization has been based. You know, you have a you you, you know you have a, a person that goes from place A to place B with the capital, with the expertise, with the knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. This is, the flows are done by people moving around. I think those movements of labor, even, a, even in, a, in a, immediately in the post, in the COVID period, that will be, we know is very highly restricted. But I think even in the post COVID period, 
I think that will be much more restricted than it was hitherto, partly because of the danger of pandemics and the exposure to pandemics, and partly, I think, because of an increasing concern about uh, ESG, sustainability type issues. I hope you're right, because I'm working on this huge grant and I'm betting the farm on it, <laughs> that this is exactly what I need to do here. Thank you, you made my day. Now, um, about regrets, regrets in, in your career, regrets in your life, do you have any regrets? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> After the interview is going to be Not yet. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I'd like to be a, 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 a foot taller and a, a, a stone lighter and um, quite a lot fitter and um, such things. But I don't I wouldn't call them so much regrets as nostalgias, really. Um, no, I, I it's been a I talk to my children, you know, the world is much worse now than it was in the 1970s and 70s and whatever, where you. Uh, um, I talk to my children who are also trying to become academics and so forth and it's all much tougher and you've got to be much more focused and much more organized and it's very hard and if you make a mistake it matters when I made a mistake of which I made quite a few um, it, it didn't matter terrifically much if you follow what I mean um, the, um, and life is too short for regrets Okay. About um, creativity or idle curiosity of the mind, uh, you, you mentioned uh, you're interested in history and math modeling. And the uh, linkage is actually quite remote, uh, very difficult to make. So in your opinion, what is creativity and how do creative ideas come, come about? Um, well, I think, you know, I mean, there's the basic uh, definitions. I mean, creativity is obviously thinking a thought or developing a line of argument uh, which didn't exist before uh, or, in, or an object that didn't exist before and somehow which is of relevance I mean, you can't just create something which is irrelevant or unimportant or doesn't talk to people. Um, I do believe academics are creative. I think we're in a creative field. We're not in a mechanical field. Um, for me, I mean, creativity, I think, comprises two, uh, two ways of thinking about creativity. The first, I think, is, is about taking ideas that develop in one context and applying them in another context. An idea which is sort of, um, which is sort of obvious to the point of mundane in one field is immensely insightful when taken to another field and thought through. And I think, you know, so much of our knowledge, I mean, uh, uh, if you look at someone you know, going back to, to the Renaissance, if you look at people uh, uh, like Leonardo, um, a lot of their creativity comes essentially from uh, taking ideas from one place and putting them into another place. 
you know, from uh, cutting up bodies, understanding more about how muscles and bones and all the rest work, and then putting them into or getting using them to understand how to construct uh, pictures of people. Um, it's not a very good example, actually, but it, but I'm just trying to link it more to creativity than the more scientific sorts of examples. Or, I mean, let's take another sort of uh, uh, mundane and obvious example, but, you know, uh, the Newtonian insight about the relationship between masses, objects and, uh, and masses, and the implications for uh, gravity, um, um, between objects and therefore the movements of objects of, of in, in space. Uh, the implications of that for say the pattern of foreign direct investment or the pattern of trade where the masses become economic masses um, and uh, uh, the distance becomes initially a geographic distance and very quickly we start thinking of it as psychic distance in institutions and so forth. That's a that's a moment of creativity, seeing a notion in a notion applied in one place and then applying it somewhere else and finding that it's immensely meaningful and it changes your way of thinking about what you were looking at. So I think that would be uh, what I would see as uh, the core of it. The other part I would say is in our field, I'm of the view that creativity is is associated with, is often associated with interdisciplinarity. Uh, by that I mean uh, thinking about issues in terms of the problem, what the problem is, rather than on the basis of the structure that is provided by the particular discipline in which one works. And I think creativity comes, I think, from this uh, a, a more rounded or all-encompassing approach. I mean, um, I don't know whether that, that answers your question, but it's- It answers perfectly. This was very good, thank you. About, uh, well, if you could start all over again, and if you could write a dissertation uh, going back a couple of years, um, what's a good dissertation topic? Now, mm. there's an infinite number of good, oh, sorry, it's a very difficult question because, you know, to be honest with you, I get emails every week with students suggesting dissertations and I have to tell you their ideas are damn sight better than my ideas because um, <laughs> they're young and they're close to the cutting edge and, and you know, that um, I sit, you know, in the... In, like the spider in the middle of the web here. Um, and I, I feel tension along the web, but I don't, I'm not out there doing things. Do you, but I would say this, I would say the following. I don't know exactly the answer to your question, but I would say the following. Good work comes in my view, ultimately from new observation. So I would base my own uh, uh, good topics would come not from in of itself theoretical gaps, 
but rather from observation, from new data sets, from new sources of information, and then thinking about how the theory has got to be developed or extended, there's your creativity, so as to understand those new observations. Let me give you a, a very simple example of what I'm working on now, but I mean, just as you probably know, the, the, the globe is completely surrounded by uh, satellites. And there's a lot of information that now comes in. You can get uh, uh, night light data, intensity of nightlight data onto uh, mapped out for the globe to a grid of about 100 meters or something of that uh, sort. And nightlight data is probably a better indicator for emerging economies. It's got a lot of problems for more developed countries, but for emerging economies, it's probably a better measure than something like GDP per capita or indeed GDP as a measure of economic activity and development. Because of course, uh, the informal sector burns lights and, and heat and all the rest exactly like the formal sector. And yet it's not captured in the, in the official statistics, but it's captured in this data. So if I were a younger person, I mean, I think a lot of work's going on, so I'm already out of date, but I'm using it as an example. I would be thinking of ways to understand how to use this data to deepen our understanding of places that we don't know enough about and we should, like Africa. Because the economic data on Africa is weak, the analysis of international businesses operating in Africa is weak, and yet we now have ways around that so we could think about that. Now, whether that's, I suppose I'm telling you if I were a PhD student what I'd do, not what is necessarily good for the for the average PhD student. But Africa is the place that we don't understand well now. Maybe, maybe the Middle East also to some extent. Neither of these are very, we understand China largely now. India's a bit less well understood, but really the two places, if you look at the demography of the world that have the potential to grow very rapidly in the next 50 years, uh, um, because they still, have a growth of population and a young population are on the sub-Saharan Africa and are in the Middle East. And so for international business, understanding what factors make these good contexts for international business and what could be done to improve it will be a very important agenda item, I think. Perfect. And this was a great answer. Perfect. Pardon? This was a great answer. Thank you. Uh, last question. Um, about advice, giving advice to patient students. Um, what's your advice for a good career, fruitful career, successful career? Well, I'm afraid I have very bland advice. I speak here as a former faculty dean of London Business School. Publish, target top journals, write top papers, Connect into networks like the Academy of International Business and publish. Work extremely hard. Collaborate effectively. When you don't have skills, find good collaborators that do have those skills. And, and embed a, 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 get a portfolio of work going young, when you're young, and it will build from there sort of on its own. It will develop a momentum on its own from there. But really, publishing target high, publish well, 
um, not it's not rocket science what I'm advising. Thank you so much for this interview. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you so. Okay. Bye.